This is Channel 253. In this episode of Interchangeable White Ladies. So the biggest challenge that international schools face, I think, is, is really looking at like their hiring practices and making sure that you're not doing more damage or continuing the damage when you're bringing people in that, that may or may not be as committed. Channel 253 is supported by Microsoft. Microsoft is committed to civic conversations like those on Channel 253 that inform and empower Washington communities. To learn more, visit aka.ms slash Microsoft in Washington. One, two, two. interchangeable. White ladies! Welcome to the Interchangeable White Ladies Podcast. I'm Hope. I'm Megan. And so for today's essential question, it might sound a little familiar because we are going to episode two of our international school series. How are international schools uniquely situated to fight, perpetuate, or contribute to educational inequities around the world? And of course, we're joined again by the one and only Yvette Santos Cuenco. Some of you might remember her from part one. And if you don't remember because you didn't listen to part one, you need to stop this recording. Yes. Go back to part one, listen to the first conversation, and then come back to this because you won't want to miss it. Um, and of course, Absolutely. remind me, Yvette has seen a lot around in the world. She lived in the Bay Area in Brooklyn, New York. Um, she holds a BA in anthropology and an Asian American studies from UCLA, also an MSW, and is a licensed master social worker in New York State as well, and also has traversed the world for over 10 years in all kinds of amazing, interesting places, Uzbekistan, Thailand, China, and of course, the UAE. Welcome back. Yay. Great to be here. Great to be back. We are so excited to have you again for another episode and con to continue the conversation that we had in the last episode. Um, and so in the last episode, we talked, um, discussed a myriad of topics surrounding international schools, kind of mainly what the heck are they? Like, what does that mean for people like me who've never like taken up mm -hmm. that space? Um, and then what is their role in the international educational space? So that kind of was what episode one was about. Um, we had begun to kind of explore their unique role um, that international schools play in educational inequities. And then we kind of ran out of time because um, just Yvette, honestly talking to you, I could have talked to you for hours. So excited <laughs> to have you back. I do want to kind of give, um, kind of set up these these conversations, especially I, I was reflecting and Hope and I were reflecting about the conversation we had last week. And before we have this conversation, I think it's really important for us to say that, um, you know, all educational systems are falling short of serving the needs of students that, like, that exist in their spaces, right? Um, so our goal of the podcast is to critically and authentically interrogate all of these systems. Um, I think the reality is that almost all schools, U.S. and abroad, must do better for their students. So this episode series is not to poke holes in the international school systems. Um, it's not to kind of compare them to the U.S. and point out all the ways that they are failing, but rather a way to have authentic and meaningful conversations about the realities of what's happening in these schools. Um, so this episode series is meant to look at international schools and see how they can do better, but also have some conversations about how they just might be uniquely positioned to make real meaningful change, change in ways the U.S. can't or hasn't yet. So I think that they're obviously in any system is good and bad. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, that's the goal of these conversations. I just really wanted to kind of give that synopsis before we jump into this conversation because I think sometimes it can come off especially as a podcast that's based in the United States we have this American exceptionalism mindset oftentimes where the United States is doing something exceptionally better than the rest of the world and I just don't think that's true uh, and so I don't want the tone or frame of this conversation to be let's point out all the ways that international schools are like bad 
um, but rather like just a real honest conversation about what's happening in them. Um, so Hope, do you want to add anything on to that before we kind of jump in? Um, no, I, 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 well, I mean, you said that very well. I think one thing too, just kind of picking back off that is it's also not meant to be a conversation that says, Hey, everything's great overseas. And the U S is, you know, a dumpster fire. Right. So I think also mm-hmm. that framing, just want to make sure listeners don't hear, hear that either, or that we are intentional about it's not, it's not that. So any comparisons we do is really just to help us understand the topic rather yeah. than, than to say like, you know, greater than or less than in some way. Yeah. I don't know if Yvette, if you if you have any two cents on on this kind of framing as well. I, I I agree with both of what you've said, and I think it needs to be made clear that white supremacy exists everywhere. It's manifested itself yes. in the United States, where it's well documented, and 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 you know, all of all of us in this Zoom space right now are Americans, so we have we have that context. But I think when you look at um, you know, what's happening around the world um, and the history of uh, diaspora and transnationalism and even manifest destiny. That's not just an American concept. Mm-hmm. I, I think of um, one of our previous guests quotations of like, never underestimate the ability of white supremacy to adapt Elisa Perez, mm-hmm. I was yes. just uh, I was just thinking that. Yeah, right. So this idea that it exists everywhere. And so having conversations, um, not comparing, but rather how has it adapted to international schools and in that space. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Yeah. Well, so with with all of that kind of front loaded, um, Yvette, would you mind talking us through what kind of your thoughts are regarding how you describe the DEIJ, DEIB, social justice kind of landscape in international schools? Um, you were doing this for a long time and you've seen, I think, a lot of change. Um, could you just describe that a little bit for listeners? I think that like it's, again, it's very different from the American context, although I think in in many ways the the context back here in the United States has helped to inform um, a lot of the work, only because it, it's just more established, you know, in in some ways in the U.S. with resources and action and like just that grassroots kind yeah. of um, work that you know, large in large part due to the work of Black Americans mobilizing during the civil rights movement. And that's just kind of spread, you know, throughout. Um, and so I think, you know, in, in the context of international schools, certainly within the last five years, um, you've seen, I've witnessed or experienced a lot of, a lot more openness to exploring and discussing and also actually putting things into action. Mm-hmm. Um, but for those of us who are doing the work, it is painfully, painstakingly slow. Yeah. It's slow. Um, and so it really depends on um, the school where you're at. Like like I said, there are some schools that are super stellar and are really like have all these supports in place, backing from the board, parents, you know, top down kind of approach um, to, you know, schools who haven't even like, it hasn't even crossed their minds except for what they put in their mission statement and the fact that they have an international curriculum. So you have this really wide range, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but definitely, certainly in the last five years, I think because of social media, um, mm-hmm. movements happening around the world in terms of social justice, not just in the U.S., but Arab Spring certainly, you know, has helped, you know, propel this um, movements in France against, um, you know, women wearing the hijab has certainly, you know, helped kind of fuel a lot of these conversations happening at, at international schools. And also just the experience of, you know, um, particularly like faculty of color or those who belong to the LGBTQIA plus space, um, not holding back anymore and, and mm-hmm. finding some strength and confidence within each other to to lift those voices up and of course it's helpful that we have some white allies and co-conspirators along the way doing what y'all are supposed to be doing anyway with with supporting and uplifting the work 
Um, so that hand in hand, the fact that that's happening and it's a lot more connected now um, and people have outlets and different spaces to um, to dig in. And uh, even if it's not happening at your school, you can you can jump in a Zoom and join an affinity group with like-minded educators around the world and find support there. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's definitely been the biggest change for me in the past couple of years that I've personally witnessed. Mm-hmm. Now, is it perfect by any means? I don't even know what perfect means. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. No, it's not. <laughs> it, it, it can be frustrating. It can be slow. Um, but I think if you look at the responses of the bigger international school organizations, they're they're responding and um, being more proactive because of that groundwork that's already that's picking up. Yeah, one as you were talking, it made me think um, those factors. I feel like in, in some ways are breaking almost like a, a bubble, like that shielded mm-hmm. bubble, the isolated mm-hmm. bubble. We don't need to talk about this. We don't have to talk about this. As we mentioned on the podcast last time, you know, we've done our diversity day. Look at <laughs> right. how diverse we are. We got some yeah, cute posters right. up. It's fine. Um, you know, we have one class from the you know the local language. Great, we're good to go. Um, and I, I really love your point. I, I think a lot of that is about breaking that bubble. Um, and just the work that has been the the opportunity for um, folks to jump in is maybe later we can get into like how COVID has actually really changed. I think some of that, mm. um, despite folks often using COVID as an excuse not to do DEJ work, like yeah. I think something about like you mentioned an international Zoom, people from all over the world, affinity groups, um, and the, and the work that can be done in in, in your, the comfort of your own home, so to speak, because mm-hmm. it's very uncomfortable work for a lot of folks as well. And 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 not to mention our our students. Let's not let's not like underestimate the power yes. of the student yes. bodies around yeah. the world. They are calling us to task. Um, the alumni as well, like I'd mentioned in the previous yes. um, conversation. Um, you know, they're not putting up with our shit anymore. Yep. For for you know, excuse my French. I can curse on on here, right? Um, they're not putting up with our BS anymore and they're asking tons of questions and actually really forcing the mirror to turn around for us to look inwards right and and look at that direct reflection and see if we like what we see Um, so definitely this is fueled not just by um, some you know uh, informed troublemakers in the faculty and staff, it's it's really driven by the students as well. I've seen that definitely firsthand at mm-hmm. my school. It's because the students mm-hmm. have, you know, and you said alumni have, you know, called things out and have said, "Hey, where where is the conversation happening? If if it's happening at all?" Um, and it's been it's been wonderful. It's been for the good, mm-hmm. even if that was uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And in many in many cases, like our our alumni are going to these. Um, you know, they're, once they le- graduate, they go to yeah. these institutions like universities and colleges where they're exposed to a lot of information and they're, right. um, you know, and, and so they're, they're, you know, experiencing things around the world, whether it's um, the turmoil that's happening in Hong Kong mm-hmm. uh, with the whole one China debate or um, what they've seen with the Stop Asian Hate Movement or, um, you know, Black Lives Matter in the United States or even, you know, what the movements that they're seeing in Europe or even around, around you know, different countries. Um, you know, they are uh, a, uh, a student body that has, that's had the fortune that they've been in international schools where we've taught them to analyze and question and and, um, you know, have these debates at a very young age. And so it should not be a surprise that they're turning the, you know, they're flipping the table yeah. on yeah. their teachers. That's what yeah. we want, right? That's, yeah. In an in a, in a, in a effect, like, you know, the IB, as traditional as it can be as an institution, um, you know, some of these students that have gone through that program um, are showing that, like, it works. Yep. Yep. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, um, I'm thinking about, as you're talking about, like, because of the global aspect and nature of these schools, mm-hmm. um, that students going through the curriculum or going through these institutions in one space, in one place, could mm-hmm. have a completely different experience than other students that are going to a school in another country, right? And something that was mentioned in the last episode, um, just really briefly, was the necessity in the impact of navigating the local governments um, and, and how that relationship can create barriers to this work in some schools, in others, not as much. I have been thinking a lot about that because it's not something that I had even thought about necessarily before mm-hmm. that conversation. Can you explain more about the role of the local government, the impact of the local government on these schools, especially when I hear like that these schools are chartered by American embassies a lot of the time. In the last episode, you all really perfectly explained the necessity of these schools so that students have transferable credits, Um, Mm -hmm. right? So like that's really a huge catalyst for the existence of these schools is um, like expat families having their children attend schools that if they were to move to another place, they would be able to take those credits and they would be transferable and accepted at another school. That absolutely makes sense to me. And we can have a conversation about how that the ethics of like credits that aren't transferable and what does that even mean? Um, and then Yvette, you also kind of touched on the colonialism and Western supremacy under of these schools. Um, mm-hmm. the, the curriculum being very Western trick. So how can international schools kind of meaningfully balance the necessity of creating standard curriculum that can be transferable for students, right? Like that there is a necessity for that. That's real. Um, while also existing and operating in countries that have been harmed by these same practices and ideals. This- that's a great question. I think I think schools need to show commitment to um, to exploring um, all different aspects of the curriculum, not just offering like Western books, like having different yeah. voices represented in the literature, even in the math and science. Um, and I think. The challenge is it's that it's really dependent often at, at how like adept or comfortable teachers feel at doing that, right? So in Shenzhen, I work with, um, and she's a really good friend of mine. She's now in Seoul, Korea. Um, one of my really good friends uh, is a um, is a English Lang and Lit diploma program IB teacher. And so if you look at the list of books that she offers and the articles that those students are reading, and I I can bet money now that even in Seoul, it would be the same thing. It's such a diverse kind of array um, that uh, they, they would, that, that she offers, right. Very similar to my conversations with hope about her classes. Yeah. Right. Um, But I think you need to have teachers that are willing to do that. And I think one of the, main things that are um, that alumni are asking for of the IB is a lot more guidance because yeah. the IB leaves it open, right? Which is the beauty about the IB. It's very right. flexible. Um, but the, the students are actually asking for a lot more guidance to, to give to um, the to teachers when they're establishing the curriculum or updating the curriculum to make sure that they're looking at equity and inclusion and social justice throughout their um, throughout their uh, work and what they offer to the kids. Absolutely, I I love that you say like even math and science because like mm-hmm. I think oftentimes people think that it's on English teachers and English teachers alone and, and history teachers but it's everywhere mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. hope I would love to hear your your thoughts about that as well but let's take a quick break and then when we come back from the break dive really into the work of the international schools talk more about what are they doing what can they do how are they uniquely positioned to kind of tackle this um, this work in their spaces Hello, I'm Eric Hanberg, host of the Channel 253 podcast, Citizen Tacoma. 
This episode of Channel 253 is sponsored by Microsoft. The Puget Sound region is experiencing historic growth. And while this presents a remarkable opportunity for the region, it also creates challenges. Microsoft is committed to our region and everyone in it, working in partnership with the community to improve environmental sustainability, affordable housing, efficient transportation, and high-quality education. These issues are fundamentally connected. Smart transportation systems reduce our region's carbon footprint. Affordable housing allows people to live in communities where they work. High-quality education prepares young people for great jobs and a bright future. Our region is remarkably complex and diverse. We need policy solutions that reflect it. This is all part of Microsoft's goal to empower every person and organization in Washington to achieve more. To learn more about Microsoft's work in this area, visit aka.ms slash Microsoft in Washington. My thanks to Microsoft for their support of Channel 253. All right. Welcome back. Don't forget to become a subscribing member of Channel 253. Thank you, all of our listeners who already are, all of you all across the world. We really appreciate it. Makes this podcast happen and all the wonderful podcasts in the Channel 253 network. Um, we really appreciate you. So thank you for subscribing. Um, Megan, you asked a question about just curriculum and Yvette, you were talking a bit about IB and, and the students mm-hmm. pushing for... Um, more just revisiting, I guess, what is required. Um, and because mm-hmm. IB is so flexible, and I was thinking about this because I teach mostly AP, but, but and a little bit of IB. But one of the things I, I've found is that it's so funny because you have these frameworks that, or maybe it's not funny, but you have these frameworks that are, you know, set up to be really free and, you know, like open-ended. Great, da-da-da-da-da. But I think part of the problem <laughs> is that you have teachers who are encapsulated in their own educational experience and like their own culture and race. So their own white, yes. to be honest, it's a lot of white folks, right. Who've had these trainings and are teaching these courses. So right. then logically they're going to teach what they know. They're going to teach what their professor taught them. They're going to teach what yeah. they heard at the IB or AP training, you know, as good paired texts or whatever. And so they're pulling that together and they're doing, I don't know, I guess the best part, assume best intent. I'm like the best they can, but also I'm like, is this really the best you can? Like just perpetuating the same authors over and over again but it's like kids say it's booked by dead white people they're yes, over exactly. it they're over yes. the book exactly. by dead white people yes. but <laughs> one of the wildest things that i love about the ib requirements is that ib actually in, in literature i'll speak to that or in english literature and language ap lang or sorry lang as well um i always get the titles confused but regardless there's actually requirements for representation from different continents and different Mm -hmm. parts of the world. And AP doesn't have that, right? So there's these outside boundaries, I think, that are actually phenomenal for bringing more diverse voices in and more different in a variety of perspectives. But even within that, folks are still like, oh my, you know, I have the continent. I have, you know, this work, we have one called work in translation. So they're like, it's a work by a Polish person in translation from Polish. Okay, cool. Like, that's what you're going to use your, that space for, or like, (laughs) a yes. French writer like yes. you're still picking these like super western super eurocentric like that's your what that's your choice you know or like I've talked to some folks at different international schools and so they, there's like one Egyptian writer whose name just left me I don't know if you remember him but um he's really famous as like the Arab writer from the region like what first of all I had I had another friend um actually from Beirut and she was like that's not even his best book like why are all these schools like using that one like that's not even his best work you know and also there's a bajillion other writers like not not him that you can reference um but it's whatever been normalized and so that I find quite uh, convoluted but also is it that surprising I don't know but there's there's room in that framework to totally put that on its head um, like I'm shocked Absolutely. when people aren't teaching out of writers from, um, central and South America, especially South America. There's so many so well-known writers, works in translation, men and women of color creating genres of their own. Like what you couldn't, you, that, why is not one of like, none of them are on there. Like what is happening here? And I think like in, to like kind of transition us into the conversations of how are these international schools uniquely positioned? Because 
I'm thinking this conversation is any teacher, any educational space. Like I think that teachers, it is easier to not do the work. It is easier to not lean into the DEIJ, DEIB work, right? It's easier to do that, to do what you've always done. Um, it's harder to lean in. And I think a way that international schools can uniquely lean into that, looping back to my original question of, you know, how how can these international schools navigate the space of existing in countries that have been harmed by white supremacy, have been harmed by colonialism, is to very intentionally choose work that highlights the rich culture and community and um, resources that the host country has to offer, right? Like is to, mm -hmm. is to provide three-dimensionality to where like the spaces that they're existing in. Um, like, that's what I think of. It's like, yeah, why are you not doing, and I don't know if schools are, maybe that's the question I should have is like, have you seen that done well? Have you seen some international schools really lean in and do really good work around connecting to the culture that they are like existing in? Um, I think I mentioned in the previous episode, my school in Tashkent, definitely. Yeah. At least when I was there, very much connected to the local culture and actually highlighted it even more as I progressed through the three years of my, my time there. Mm -hmm. It was a really important part of the, com the community that we were committed to, um, especially because our uh, Uzbek colleagues would be there forever. They're not going anywhere, right? Yeah. Uh, um, some of them have had the opportunity to also go to other international school overseas because the school intentionally helped them with getting like the right certifications that would be recognized like PGCE or the state certification and stuff. Um, so I think that like school needs to be, schools need to be committed to that, like really, mm -hmm. um, Working with the local community, with the local, uh, locally based uh, staff, um, to to highlight that, and also rewarding them for their work that they put into yeah. doing that for us, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> um, my school in China was also really good at, at at doing that, at really highlighting the fact that we are in China, not just on Lunar New Year, but you know, really integrating that aspect. Um, and and making sure that like you know little things like the world language world languages that we offer especially the local language um, mm -hmm. were just as important as all the other mm -hmm. core yeah. Yeah. subjects. That there I think are, is one of the, the biggest one right. of the biggest challenges I've heard from a lot of schools is is that yeah. disparity in how how students talk about the language that they're learning that's the home or the language of the local country versus all the other languages that are being offered mm -hmm. at the school. Mm -hmm. And it's so interesting how that switches depending on the, the region or whatever is local. It also seems like a place that can be leveraged easier, like better as well. In terms of like shifting people's attitudes and having the same positive talk about, it doesn't matter if you're learning Spanish or Arabic or French or Chinese or whatever. So when you choose not to integrate that, it's really a choice, you know, and it's just like, I think with international schools, very similar to the independent schools in the U.S., where you're not encumbered by district requirements or yeah. even like, you know, getting even into more specific details, like getting attached to IEPs and 504s and all those things that really kind of um, add to the time that you know, public school educators have to dedicate to their to their work. Um, and so when when schools don't commit to these things, uh, especially at the independent or international school um, uh, level, it's almost like you're not you're, you're just willfully choosing not to do it at this point, especially when everything else around you, the world is kind of focusing on it, moving in that direction. So when you when you're not doing it, it's, it's becoming more obvious. Yeah. That kind of leads me into my next question if, of like, so not being encumbered by these district expectations or state guidelines, mm -hmm. like what are some 
maybe unique characteristics that position international schools to lean into this work more quickly or efficiently than U.S. schools, right? So how are international schools uniquely set up to tackle this work um, in ways that U.S. schools aren't? Um, when you are a nonprofit international school, that means your operational budget, and your, the tuition goes directly into the operational budget and, um, you know, paying salaries out, right? That's basically how you break, that's, you, you're showing that you're breaking even because as a nonprofit, everything goes into the school. Mm-hmm. So if you're charging like, not not to put this work into dollars and cents, but oftentimes it is. Tuition is like forty forty five thousand at the top of international schools, right? So it's like paying for a college education already for you know your your child when when you put them into a school like like that. Um, and so the school is making choices with that funding, um, and they're well funded. You know, the resources that you would see at an international school um, in the top tier, as they would say, um, it just by and large is like miles and years ahead of what you would see in the public schools in the U.S. At the average public schools, not the ones that are like given special status or um, focused, you know, because of their um, because of their uh Ex- uh, not experience, but their reputation. So, um, you know, there's definitely a lot more uh, money and opportunity to to uh, to put into the work. And so, I, again, it's the same as like uh, what I said before. It's along the same lines. Now you're just choosing not to do it if you don't do it. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, I was thinking about because of just different constraints on funding, where there's flexibility versus where there isn't. Obviously, every school mm-hmm. has, you know, budget requirements, yeah, et cetera, right. right? And they have to right. re-support the mission of the school and, and so on. But I was mm-hmm. thinking like in terms of, I know a number of schools doing this work in part is because that they have a really good professional development program established or they're putting funds into that and then they're hiring folks who can lead that work and have you know conversations around equity and justice and build that into professional development in an authentic way and I think that's one thing that's you know in some ways you're like quick to turn on a dime but then on the other hand you know it, it's still as I was saying so slow but I think that's one thing that's interesting right you can use your funds a little bit different maybe offer different professional development opportunities and if you can't cover them at your school or provide them, right? You can provide where you're going to, if a high-end school is going to want to offer good professional development. So if you don't offer that in-house, you send your people out, right? You send them to conferences around the world mm-hmm. or, you know, in, in Zoom days, right? They can join a Zoom conference and and workshops and whatnot. And I think that's, that's an interesting space. I think also like if you're interested in, you know, back to the English thing, bringing in new books. And I, I think this also applies in other um, disciplines as well. If you're interested in bringing guest speakers in, um, I, I think about one of our amazing science teachers who is always working. She, there's an organization actually out of the U.S. that she works with to help students have, you know, real live um, scientists uh, that are women and scientists of color. Mm-hmm. And so tapping into that, I think, um, is also part, you know, there's less paperwork, you know, in some regards than like bringing right. in a guest speaker in American public school. I, and I think you, you both mentioned Alyssa Pereira's like mm-hmm. uh, a, a moment ago. And yeah, you know, that's, that's proof that the, the work is happening, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. She's one of a few that that's offering the work you know, or offering um, the, her her services to help schools really analyze, um, you know, where they're at with the EIJ and B. Um, and so, um, you know, it's not like these people aren't out there. It's not like we right. have to reinvent the wheel completely. There are a few like her that are... Um, yep you know, available for international schools that understand how international schools work. So they're not just coming from an American centric or Eurocentric context. Um, So again, you know, for international schools, there's no more excuses. (laughs) Yeah. So 
I think like saying, you know, that they can't. So the unique positionality of international schools is that they can do it if they want to, yes. right? That they're not encumbered by the the bureaucratic, like big system structures and getting per- permission. Hope, it looked like you had something to say. Yeah, I was just thinking too about like the idea of healthy competition. <laughs> and so also there's this element of if you want to be, you know, on the on the front, you know, cutting edge of mm-hmm. your, mm-hmm. your school counselor support, mm-hmm. what you offer for learning, you know, special needs, what you offer for ELL, what you offer for all these different things. There's also an incentive to do that. And so there's this interesting kind of dynamic between you. It's it's a little bit risky to be the very first one out there, right? Especially on some of these issues. Um, and I, I think back in full, full disclosure, this is something that we've talked about before um, at my school. So I, I don't feel uncomfortable talking about it. But like one of the things in thinking about our school's response to George Floyd's murder was, are other schools talking about this? Are other schools putting out announcements about it? And it's really scary to be the first one to take a stand on something yep. um, that maybe you perceive is happening somewhere else that you don't have purview over for whatever, et cetera. And back to Yvette's point about alumni, that's what helped kind of push things over the edge for us. And another school in South America took took the leap first. And so, you know, you have this kind of healthy competition in this work, I think mm-hmm. as well, that can be used um, for the benefit of our, of our students and our community to say, hey, what, what are we offering? You know, everybody's having a dean of, D, of DEIJ, like not that, not that that means it's going to be off. I mean, you've got other issues that come from that, but I, I, I think it's interesting to play with. I don't know if that, if you agree with that or if that's too careful. Oh, to no, absolutely. You definitely <laughs> yeah. see it's like, oh, they've got a coordinator now, like, but what else are they doing? And, yeah. and you know, I'm, I'm privy to a lot of these, um, conversations and I've been told by folks well yeah we we're doing this and that but there's still a lot of bs going on in the background right mm-hmm. um but I think that's that's just part of the work right like yeah. even even uh, at at schools um here in the U.S. at my school you know we've got a lot of things going on like we are you know in many ways um doing a lot of great work but it doesn't mean that it's hard and doesn't mean that it's not um, it doesn't mean that it's not hard and that it's not complicated yes. because it is. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It like, is. Regardless of where you're doing the work, there are unique challenges. There's unique mm-hmm. difficulties and barriers, which actually now takes me to my next question, which is, um, so that was, you know, how are international schools better equipped or positioned to do this work? And I'm curious, what challenges do international schools face that U.S. schools don't face, right? So the flip side of it, what are some things that international schools have to take into consideration or barriers that they have to navigate that, say, schools in the United States are not having to face or or to navigate or deal with? I think it's the fact that it's such a transient community, right? Mm-hmm. So you almost have to ensure that when a group of folks move out, you're bringing in people that can help carry that load or continue the work, right? Um, So the biggest challenge that international schools face, I think, is, is really looking at like their hiring practices and making sure that you're not doing more damage or continuing the damage when you're bringing people in that that may or may not be as committed. Um, does that mean that there's no room for people to grow? Absolutely not. But I think that like you really have to put more scaffolded checks and balances into place. Um, I know that, you know, there is one school uh, in West Africa that just made the decision like we're not going to use the IB experience as like the the weeding out um as part of the weeding out process Mm -hmm. because they want more diversity in their applicant pool and they want people to really be given the opportunity and I think more if once more and more schools are more are more open to that more open to bringing in um, or, or interviewing applicants they may, that may not have international school experience yet, um, you're going to see a lot more uh, diversity in the field. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I was thinking about the word um, like institutionalizing this work and institutionalizing mm-hmm. it because of the turnover from kids yeah. and turnover from staff. So if you're going to make a, a staffing you know, policy change with comes to your hiring practice, put that into all of your documentation and make that part of, part of, part yeah. of, the, part of the thing. Right. So when the principal right. who's doing that work or the superintendent who was supportive of it changes or the board changes, that's not lost. Right. Um, I think right. about that in terms of, you know, even the micro stuff with curriculum, we talk a lot about and one of the things that we were hired was the, explaining to us that we have, there's a program already in place to help, you know, codify essentially the curriculum. And yes, there's some freedom to make some tweaks and changes to refine, but we're not changing, we're refining it, right? As we learn, you know, as we get better to adapting to standards, blah, 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 right? And so I think about those things, you know, if your value is more diverse authors, who is who did you purchase in the book room? And we make sure that this is part of the rotation that is taught at blank mm-hmm. grade level, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think institutionalizing a number of those things um, you know, whether it's your inclusion policy, like, do you have an inclusion policy? Make sure that's in your handbook, because if you at least don't even have it in right there in writing, like, how are you going to hold? There, yeah. There's so much of that, like, you got to have, you got to be real in your practice. And you also have to have it implement, like in the documentation. Otherwise turnover is, yep. is done. The, the necessity to codify, like codify the, the work that's being done. I hadn't even mm-hmm. thought about like the transient, the nature of the staffing and how difficult it is to get momentum and the onboarding pro anyway, like that's, um, an insight that I'm going to be chewing on for a while. Something that, I, oh, go ahead, Hope. No, I was going to say, we kind of need to go to the champagne and real pain. That's what I was about to say. Oh, okay, perfect. So, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, don't worry. So I was going to say, I just want, um, as a reflection, something that I've heard across both episodes, this, the last one and this one is the, the significant impact of staffing and the intentionality mm-hmm. behind staffing and how staff is being treated and valued. And that, man, that is the, the thread that is holding all of your answers together. I don't know if y'all have also heard that in this, these conversations, but the the significant impact of of who is in that building mm-hmm. and the power that mm-hmm. who is in that building has on the work that is being done mm-hmm. because of the choice that is had right because of the freedom that these schools have to do that work um the people that are doing it matters um so i just that's something that i kind of as a a thread that's how I would summarize the last two conversations. Um, so I, it is time for that, that next segment, Hope. All right, so raise a glass of champagne, um, literal or figurative, if you, if you want, depending on where your time zone is when you're listening to this. Champagne for my real friends, real pain for my sham friends. I definitely want to raise a glass to um, the work that is happening, and I really appreciate ISS, and I'll link to these all these acronyms, um, and some of the work that Nisa has been doing to just push the envelope in these conversations. I don't care how it got started, but I'm glad it's happening. <laughs> um, I do care how it got started. Thank you to all the black and brown <laughs> folks that have made it happen um, that brought us to this point um, where these are starting to be offered regularly. And of course, like the current session I'm in, I've talked a little bit about before with Darnell, Darnell Fine and Alicia Oh yeah, Darnell. Oh my gosh. Oh, my and <laughs> the lady I can I see her face in my head, Beckwith, maybe. I can't remember her name though. Suddenly I forgot. It's a, a trio and they're they're amazing. And so I really appreciate they're doing some really, really hard, uncomfortable work and they're just kicking ass. So champagne to them. Yvette, who's your champagne to? Or multiple champagnes? Oh my gosh. Um I just want to raise a glass of champagne to um, my students around the world in the United States, particularly uh, my students who are celebrating um, Black History Month, um, especially if it's, uh, you know, hitting close to home for them, as well as my students who are celebrating Lunar New Year mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, what that means for their families and uh, being able to, to honor their ancestors. Um, as well. So a huge glass of champagne or some cider for my students under 21. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Though I know they're probably not drinking cider. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I would love to just raise a glass to all the people that are having 
the necessary conversations around this work that are just honest and difficult and challenging. Um, I am really lucky through the podcast to hear about really good work that's being done um, around the world around this. And it makes me hopeful in a time where in, in United States public schooling, it like nothing feels very hopeful right now. And so to be reminded that there are people that care and are pushing back um, and doing the work, it's very uplifting. So, um, so real pain, how about real pain? Who would we like to like call out a little Mm -hmm. bit, throw some shade at? Any school district right now that is making life all the more difficult for their their staff, um, yeah. either through the COVID mess or um, because you know they're they're pitting teachers, they're pu- pushing teachers into positions where they have to make choices about uh, what they're offering the kids in terms of curriculum. So throw some shade on all those people there. Yeah. That's a lot of people. <laughs> I know. Add the book, book burning shade. I'm going to add yeah. the shade for the folks. I just was seeing the article about um, cameras in schools and just like the way all of that is happening and going down. And it's like freedom and liberty, but also all these limitations and laws and constrictions, like same people, mm-hmm. same folks, but it doesn't make no sense. Mm-hmm. So shade and shade tell them. Um, I want to just say the name Amir Locke, um, the black man that was murdered in his apartment in Minneapolis, um, with a no knock warrant. Um, the fact that after Breonna Taylor's murder, that no knock warrants were not suspended, um, so come on, I, Minneapolis. Come again. on. And so, oh my I mean, gosh, mayor, yes. Repeatedly. So the mayor, so the mayor has now temporarily put a moratorium on no knock warrants. The fact that that wasn't done after the senseless murder of um, Breonna Taylor blows my mind, and that another um, black man has lost his life due mm-hmm. to this is heartbreaking. And the fact also that it is not in my opinion, getting as much coverage as I I believe it deserves is also enraging. Um, So I just feel like I need to say his name. Um, And, and we have to have a, like, I just, and at this point, it just feels like a broken record of saying we have to have Mm -hmm. a real honest conversation in police reform. And, and like, we do, we have to keep pushing. We have to keep pushing because people's lives are at stake and, and they're being taken. Um, and to add to that, I and because it's also not really talked about in the news, although I saw CNN do a quick headline on it yesterday, um, throw some shade to the individuals that are calling in bomb threats to the historically oh black colleges gosh, and yes. universities, um, because now it's like creating a lot of um, hysteria and tension and worry for students that really just need to be focused on their academics. Uh, right now. Um, And so, you know, I've seen in this area, because I'm actually, um, I'm right next to Howard Law and also University of District Columbia, which is a public HBCU um, in DC. And so they've had cops like beats up all up and down Connecticut Avenue. And around here, I know Howard main campus down in the Shaw District, um, that has more and, and, you know, all the HBCUs in the U S have beefed up their security yeah. as a result. And I mean, um, to be honest, that's not, that's a community that doesn't need more police involvement. Yes. <laughs> and it's just, it's just like, that. just yes. the craziness of that situation as well, you know, so yeah. lots and lots of shade to those people. Yes. And I, and I hope they get caught. I feel like we could have just like a full episode of real pains, um, at this point, which is so depressing. It's so depressing. Um, but we're ready for our last segment. Do your fudging homework. Interchangeable. Right, ladies. So this is where we try and give <laughs> our listeners some homework, any, like some action items, some things to leave this episode, um, to actually go and, do so do you both have any homework that you would like to assign 
So my homework is specifically towards um, to U.S. educators. I this is this teaching in this time is like saying it's really hard is like the most understated thing I could possibly say. But um, I just want to say there are schools at home and abroad that will appreciate you, that will give a crap about the work that you care about, that do prioritize your health, that mental health and physical health, um, and are worth you getting involved in and not quitting in teaching. So I think um, this work is very easy. It is hard regardless of where you're teaching. um, But I also think this time in this season is extremely um, frustrating and depressing and joyless for a lot of folks. And so I just want to remind people that there are places that you can work even now that will bring back some of that joy. And so instead of quitting, I just want to challenge you to think about if you're being unappreciated and you're being unheard and you're being disrespected in your place, um, consider finding somewhere else to to like reignite that love of, of the, of the profession. Um, there are lots of kids all over that need you as well and, and, and schools that could benefit from having you as part of the community. So really want to encourage you to, to just, I know it's hard to also find the mental space to like start looking, but I just want to encourage folks with that as well. I would absolutely agree with that. I think that something else that I've heard in the last like two conversations we've had is that not all schools are equal in the work that they're doing. Right. And so it really depends on the people in the building. And I think that's both in the U S and abroad. And so I just want to echo that hope is like, if you know that you love teaching, but you are feeling really underappreciated or no appreciation at all, you're burned out. Like maybe the answer is just, you're not surrounded by the right people and to find and find a place that will be right. Not necessarily leave the profession. Yep. Yeah. Come on over to Edmund Burke. The kids will call you by your first name because that's how we that's how we roll. And you know, you could be who you want to be without leaving it at the door as a teacher. So, you know, look out for those listings. Um, I'll send Hope uh, the link to independent schools if people are open to that. Not that I'm saying people should leave the public school system. We need a balance of like mm-hmm. amazing educators right. yes. all over. But um, certainly do not feel like you have to stay in a place where um, you're not supported and you're not valued um, for all the gifts that you bring to the classroom and outside of the classroom for your kids. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, Yvette, thank you for another fantastic uh, yeah. conversation and listeners for listening this whole time because this is a long episode, but we love you all. And it was important because you're less basic than you were when you started. So that worked out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right, if I can contribute to people being less basic, I, that that just makes my Sunday. Amen to that. Yes. I'm so glad to be back for the second episode. Um, you know, I love you know, talking with you. So if you ever need me to come on again, let me know. Absolutely. Sounds good. We'll find a reason. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Bye. Bye. Channel 253 is supported by Microsoft. Microsoft is committed to civic conversations like those on Channel 253 that inform and empower Washington communities. To learn more, visit aka.ms slash Microsoft in Washington. The Interchangeable White Ladies podcast is part of the Channel 253 network. Check out our other shows, Nerd Farmer, Citizen Tacoma, Crossing Division, Flounder's B-Team, We Art Tacoma, and What Say You? This is Channel 253.